Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Matt and the team are filling in for Blake, who's on vacation this week. Thank you guys for letting Amy and I have a couple of weeks off the last couple of Sundays. It was very healing for us. We went to the Southern Baptist Convention, which was not healing, and uh, afterward we took a vacation and just took some time off, and it was awesome. And I'm glad you got to hear Jordy and Vince, and it just sort of does your heart good to know that the future's in good hands, isn't it? Uh, those, those men who love Jesus, committed to His Word. Let's pray together. Father, as we open Your Word, um, my desire is for Jesus to be heard, and that whatever uh, we do, that You would be made visible. The, the principles of your word would be applicable for the lives we live right now. And uh, that's all we desire. Let your Holy Spirit do what you will. In Jesus' name, amen. From 1985 to 1995, a guy named Bill Watterson wrote a comic strip called Calvin and Hobbes. Maybe some of you can remember Calvin and Hobbes. It was so much more than a comic strip because Bill Watterson was a guy of rare intellect, and insight. And so through these two little characters, a six-year-old named Calvin, who, by the way, he named after John Calvin, the reformer, and his stuffed tiger Hobbes, who he named after the philosopher Hobbes, to create that tension, he, he built into this comic strip insights of life that were rare and sometimes really brilliant. Uh, Somebody gave me the complete set, a friend gave me the complete set of Calvin and Hobbes, and it's one of my great treasures. But there was this one particular strip where he's dealing with the issue of happiness, and the strip went like this, Calvin, here I am happy and content, next frame, but not euphoric. Notice the smile is gone, third frame, hands on his hips. So now I'm no longer content, I'm unhappy, my day is ruined. In the final scene, he walks away with some good advice. He said, I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. And in that four little frame strip, he really puts his thumb on the pulse of what's wrong with the fragility of happiness. First of all, when you go to analyze it, it tends to fall apart. And secondly, uh, happiness never lasts. Happiness is like a snowflake. The minute you touch it, it's gone. Joy isn't like that. Joy is resilient. Here's how joy works. Joy says, no matter what happens in my life, good or bad, no matter what happens in my life, I know this. I know that God is good. Life may not always be good. I know that God is good. Life may not always be fair, but I know that God is fair. And I know that God loves me. And I know that God has a plan for my life. And so regardless of what happens in my life, I will choose to rejoice in what God is doing to me and through me in this experience of life. And that's a resilience that, quite simply, happiness will never have. Because joy is not based on feelings. Joy is based on faith. Now, I say that because uh, that's the essence of what is described in the book of Philippians. And that's what we're studying. So let's get our Bibles and let's go to the book of Philippians. And remember, this is a book of joy. It uses the word joy and rejoice uh, per capita more than any other book in the Bible. And Paul is in prison and he's writing about joy to these people. So it really 
is nonsensical from a human perspective. How can a guy that's in prison be experiencing and encouraging joy? But that really uh, deals with the resilient nature of joy. But I've got to be careful here to bring balance, or else we're going to begin to think that, that joy is just this act of faith that is uh, basically this stoic endurance test. And you walk away going, man, I, th- I thought joy would be a little more, I don't know, joyful. Well, the fact of the matter is, joy is joyful. It's not just an act of faith, but it's also a feeling of pleasure. Um, Go to Psalm 34, verse 8. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you feel that? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in Him. The psalmist was saying, experience the joy. Don't just resolutely endure life, but feel the goodness of God. Experience it, taste it, uh, partake of it, understand it, ex- uh, live it. And, and, and with that in mind, we, we take our Bibles now and we go back to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to look at what I would call complete joy. It's described by Paul, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So let's get our Bibles out. Let's turn our devices on. Let's go there. Um, And don't just take my word for it. You read it. Uh, If you've got a Bible, make notes in the margin. If you've got a device that you can, make those notes as the Spirit gives you insights into that. And let this become something God speaks into your heart. He says this in verse 1 of of, uh, chapter 2. And remember, chapter 1, he's already introduced himself. Paul's in prison. He's writing to this church in in a town called Philippi. It was named after a guy named Philip. Uh, so maybe that'll help you with these confusing names. The, the book of the Bible is called Philippians, but it's basically just a letter. And in this letter, this guy in prison is writing to this group of people, encouraging them to live with joy. And then in chapter 2, uh, he really begins to drill down on it. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit if any affection and compassion. And so he starts with this series of rhetorical questions. He, he uses the word if, but because these are rhetorical, the implication is since. It's not if there is encouragement, if there is consolation, but since we have these things in Christ, since these are ours, in fact, in Christ, and here's what you, you can understand from that. He says, make my joy complete. You see that? Uh, circle that. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You got that? Make my joy complete. We've seen Paul exercising the faith of joy, but now he's saying complete my joy. And that word means to fill up or to fill full. Fill my joy up to full. And so the question then becomes, well, I've seen what joy looks like on the faith side of things. You know, to live as Christ, to die as gain. He talked about that in chapter 1. Now he says, I want complete joy. The question is, what is complete joy? Here's what I think it is. When the faith of joy joins with the feelings of joy, then you have complete joy. It's that indescribable moment of pleasure in God. Peter talks about it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Look at this. This brings you great joy. Although you may have to suffer for a short time in various trials, such trials show the proven character of your faith, which is much more valuable than gold. 
Gold that's tested by fire, even though it is passing away and will bring praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So you guys are going through some hard stuff, right? He said, but it brings you great joy. Knowing the outcome of that is the character Christ creates in your heart. But now watch this verse eight. You have not seen him, but you love him. You do not see him now, but you believe in him. And so you rejoice, and look at this, with an indescribable and glorious joy. There is that moment of connection between the faith of my joy and the feelings of joy that create this exhilaration of joy as I walk in the goodness of God. And so I would say this, complete joy happens when when you trust in the goodness of God and you taste of the goodness of God. And so the question then becomes, how do I get that? Where do I go to get it? Well, here's the good news. You don't have to go anywhere to get it. You already have everything you need to have complete joy. You don't have to go looking for it. You simply choose to accept it. That's the other difference between happiness and joy. You chase happiness, you choose joy. Did you get that? You chase happiness, you choose joy. Everyone today is chasing happiness. That's the mantra of the modern age. Pursue happiness. Isn't that involved in the Declaration of Independence? Remember what it said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And what are our unalienable rights? That among them are, it's not exhaustive, but among them are three things. Life, we get that. Liberty, we get that. But that third one, the pursuit of happiness. I mean, I understand life as an inalienable right. I understand liberty as an inalienable right. But the pursuit of happiness, but let me tell you something. We have locked onto that one like a pit bull and our whole world is going after that. They're chasing happiness. I would go on to say the pursuit of happiness has become the nation's number one obsession. And of course, the problem with happiness is when you chase it, it disappears. There's this old cemetery just north of Pottsboro, Texas, on the Preston Peninsula. Back in the old days of, you know, uh, 1800s, when people were coming from Indian Territory in the north into Texas, they would come in through the trading post at the very tip of the Preston Peninsula, which was uh, just on the Texas side of the Red River. They dammed up the Red River. The lake flooded that area. The town of Preston was was gone, but Preston Peninsula is still there. And, And some of the little old towns that didn't flood are still there as well. In fact, the road that runs from Preston Point down to Dallas, Texas, is called Preston Road. And some of you who are from Dallas or that area understand Preston Road. There's a little church out there that goes by the name of Preston Wood. Remember that? Well, that's all tied to the same thing. There's a little town that used to be there called Georgetown. It's gone, but all that's left is an old cemetery. And it's one of these cool old cemeteries, kind of a creepy old cemetery. It's got the old Civil War markers that are bent and crooked and broken and obelisks and mausoleums and, and, you know, old gnarly trees. It's like Legend of Sleepy Hollow kind of place. And it's in the middle of nowhere, so you got to kind of take these rolling hill roads and you wind up on this little two-lane asphalt road. You look over to the left and there's the old Georgetown Cemetery. 
And the legend was in that part of the world that there was a glowing tombstone in the Georgetown Cemetery. And so if you pulled up in just the right spot, I can't remember what it was, you had to count four fence posts or eight fence posts or something like that. Then you'd pull up and when the, when the moon was right and everything was right and you held your tongue right and all that, you'd look over and there in that creepy, dark, sort of hazy cemetery, up on a hill, there was a, a tall obelisk monument marker and it would literally glow this greenish color. True story, I've seen it myself. But the weird thing was, if you could get over the creeps and you could find the courage as a, as a teenager, because everybody used to go out and see the glowing tombstone, you know, it's kind of, we didn't have much to do in Denison. And uh, if you could muster up the courage and get out of your car and walk through the cemetery to find the glowing tombstone, you never could find it. It didn't glow except from that one spot. And you know, when I think of happiness... I think of the old glowing tombstone at Georgetown Cemetery. I mean, you can see it, you know what it is, but if you try to find it, it just seems to vanish in the wind. But joy's not like that. You don't have to chase joy. You already have everything necessary to have it. You just have to choose to accept it. Let's back up that verse. It says, therefore, therefore, and as a result of everything that he said, remember, when we see the word therefore, what do we always ask? what it's there for, right? And therefore, in light of everything that he's just said, to live is Christ, to die is gain, you know, all of that stuff. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and remember that since there is encouragement in Christ, here's what you have. First of all, you have encouragement in Christ. Since you have encouragement in Christ, and that word encourage means to call alongside, parakaleo. It's one of the words for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. He says, it's that moment of knowing that whatever you're going through, you're not alone. And and, and look who our encouragement comes from, in Christ. What did he say? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth. So whatever you're going through, you're not going through it alone because Christ is with you. He says, since there is encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, and consolation is a word very similar to encouragement, only it has to do with um, consoling, consoling. to to helping people to uh, get over a grief. And notice it's a consolation of love. You say, well, how does that work? Well, when I sin, I deal with the shame and guilt of sin and the feelings of worthlessness. You may be there right now. And you're struggling with self-hatred and all that goes along with it. You can't believe you did it again. If there is any... And since there is consolation of love, love comes in and consoles us. It says, look, I'm not minimizing what you did, but you need to realize I love you despite that. I love what one guy said. He said, God doesn't love all the things we do. He loves us in spite of all the things we do. And in spite of all of that, you're deeply loved and fully accepted by me. And that love had driven him to the cross to die for our sins. So that when we place our faith in Christ, the love of Christ covers us. And it doesn't just cover us, it consoles us. It's already there. You already have encouragement. You already have consolation. And look, it says, if any fellowship of the Spirit, you see that? And that word fellowship, of course, means two fellows in the same ship. That's fellowship. 
And I look at this world today and I see how different we are and I say, how can we have fellowship? You know, there are five high schools represented in our student ministry. And every high school hates the other one, right? I mean, on the football field, Sterlington hates OCS. OCS hates Sterlington. Neville hates Washita. Everybody hates West Monroe. <laughs> right? Where's the where's the Koinonia? Where's the fellowship in that? I mean, look how different we are. We're different ages, we're different genders, we're different socioeconomics, education level, occupation level, race. We've got all these differences. And out there in the world, they are emphasizing differences. That's what they're doing. They'll use important sounding academic words, but it's really a way to create identity politics, both in the news media and through the political system so that they can separate us and build a power base to use us to keep them in power or in money or whatever it is. And that's the way the world works. That's what they're doing. In fact, I look at this America today is killing us. The great melting pot that used to pull us together has become the great sorting machine that drives us apart. And I say, that may be how it works out there, but that is not how it works in here because we've got something different. He says, if there's any fellowship of the what? What's he say? Read, look at the Bible. What's it say? If any fellowship of what? The Spirit. We have something in Christ the world doesn't have. We have the Spirit of God. And where the Spirit of God is, there's unity and there's peace. There ought to be peace. Ephesians 4 says this, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Look, the, the oneness of the Spirit trumps all the other dividing things. And it pulls us together into the same ship. And I would say this, if you let what divides us become more important than the one who unites us, then you are insulting the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, if any affection, that word is splagna, it means guts. That's where they felt the passion. So it's, it's really passion and compassion understanding and empathizing and sympathizing. Since these things are yours, encouragement, consolation, fellowship, passion, compassion, then you already have everything you need to know real joy. Here's why this is so important. Because there are so many within the church who don't really value joy. I mean, there are some who think joy is unimportant. They think that it's trivial, like following Jesus is so weighty. Let's talk about sanctification and justification, and let's talk about glorification and, you know, all millennial, premillennial, dispensational, and all this other stuff that seems so important. We don't want to trivialize this thing with joy. I'm like, dude, joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit, along with love and those other important things. You say, you got any joy? Then, yeah, I've got joy. I've got joy in my heart. And I always want to say, well, somebody needs to tell your face. Because whatever's in your heart's not coming out on your face. 
And there's nothing attractive about that. Nobody wants to hang around that guy. You know, the Bible says if you got joy in your heart, it ought to show up on your face. Look at Proverbs 15, 13. A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. What's in your heart ought to be written on your face. Another reason, some people think joy is unspiritual. Some people believe that going to church should make you feel bad. I've had people tell me that. They've said to me these exact words, Pastor, I don't feel like I've been to church unless I walk out feeling bad about myself. I'm like, where did you get that? You didn't get it in Philippians. Not only are you, do you have permission to feel joy, you're commanded to it. We're called to joy, and God has given us everything we need for it. We simply have to embrace it. What more do you need than the encouragement of Christ, the consolation of love, the fellowship of the Spirit, and the passion and compassion? You've got all you need, man. Open your eyes and receive it. And then get over yourself. And that's the next thing he says, get over yourself. You know, I was, Amy and I, after the convention, we went to Hawaii. I've never been. Have y'all ever been? It's a long way to Hawaii, I'll tell you that. It's beautiful, though. Every part of it looks like a picture postcard. But I, I don't fly very much. I, my rule is if I, can, if I can get there in two days, I'll do that over flying any day. I'll drive. And so I'm in the airport because you can't drive to Hawaii. I checked, and uh, um, I'm sitting in the airport, and you know, everybody's in this boarding area at, at gate whatever, and you're sitting around at gate whatever waiting to board, and finally the little girl picks up the microphone and goes, uh, we're going to begin boarding now. Uh, any handicapped people or people with special needs or uh, you know, military or whatever, you can board right now. First class people, you board. And I noticed that the minute she says that, everybody kind of stands up and starts queuing up and getting in line like they're trying to get there first. And I'm like, why is everybody in such a hurry to get on this airplane? I, I checked my ticket. I've got an assigned seat. I'm going to, my seat's going to be there when I get on. Why am I in a hurry? And plus they do it in groups like group one is boarding, group two is boarding. Group nine is already standing in line pushing to get on. Why is that? And then when the airplane finally lands and it pulls up to the gate, it, it, everybody stands up. And it's like, oh, I got to get in the aisle, you know? You know, and I'm get all my bags, get everything. You know, it's like I'm ready for the race. I'm like, these are the same people who couldn't wait to get on the plane. Now they can't wait to get off the plane. What's the deal? Do you want on the plane? Do you want off the plane? What do you want? And I thought about that, and here's what I came to. I don't think it's about the plane. I don't think it's about getting on the plane or getting off the plane. I think it's about being first. We all want to be first. We all want to get the best spot. We want to be in the best place. We want to get to the best, the best idea. One wag said this, people want the front of the bus, the back of the church, and the center of attention. Isn't that true? <laughs> think what that does to joy. If happiness is being first, then only the first can be happy, and everybody else is a loser. Even second place is just first loser. How can everybody be happy? Everybody's got to get their way. So for me to get my way means that you can't have yours. And that competition undermines everything we're after. That's exactly what James was talking about in chapter 4. He says, what's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. 
So you fight and wage war to take it away from them, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. And happiness for a lot of people is getting what I want. And so to find joy, you have to get over yourself. It's the paradox. To find my life, I have to lose it, right? Look at what he says in verse 2. Make my joy complete. And how? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul felt complete joy, not when Paul got his way, but when the church was unified and focused on its purpose. None of that was about Paul. Did you notice that? It was all about what God was doing in his church. Man, having just gotten back from the Southern Baptist Convention, this is a relevant and timely word for me. I've got to tell you, at the Southern Baptist Convention, the crowds are bigger than ever right now. You know why? Because they're fighting again. And, and I, I have to tell you, I've never, there's never been a time where I've had more concern over the future of the Southern Baptist Convention than right now. Because I really don't know who's in charge. It seems to be a collection now of special interest groups that are all pushing. The Calvinists want more Calvin. The traditionalists want more tradition. The progressives want more progress. Everybody wants what they want. And it doesn't really seem that anybody wants what Jesus wants. Because certainly the things that Paul just described are not the things that they're after. It's like they forgot that Je- to put Jesus on the agenda. I, I think I reminded of these line, this line by Max Lucado. He said, "When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight." You want to you want to create a big crowd in a church? Used to be. I don't think this is true anymore. Used to be when you wanted a big crowd in a church, have a church fight. Everybody shows up. And that's what I realized. A lot of people get energized when the church is in conflict. But Paul was the opposite of that. He found joy when the church was united. Look, he says the same mind. That word is phroneo. It means a mindset, to have the same mindset. Phroneo comes from the word diaphragm. We get that word from that because that's where the ancient Greeks thought that the feeling and thinking happened right in here because that's where you really felt it, you know. Uh, They didn't really understand the concept of a brain. It was more what was going on in the heart. And so what he's saying is that you maintain, you have this same mindset that there's a commonality of thinking, of attitude. And then he says, maintaining the same love. And that word maintain means to hold on to. It's like I get a hold of it and I have to grab onto it and I don't let it go because love is not something that happens just naturally. You got to you got to hold on to that stuff. You got to make it work. And that word for love there is agape. It's sacrificial love. So I'm holding on to love. And then he says united in spirit. And that word united in spirit is a beautiful word. It's sumsuke. You know, the word symphony means a harmony of sound, phanos, symphanos, a harmony of sound. Sumsuke means a harmony of soul, suke, soul. It's the idea, if you read Samuel, where David and Jonathan and their relationship, it said the soul of David was knit to the soul of Jonathan. And I love it. It wasn't stitched. It was knitted. It was 
so indelibly entwined that you couldn't tell where the soul of David stopped and the soul of Jonathan started. And Paul uses that word in Colossians 2 too, where he talks about our hearts having been knitted together in love. And, and that's the idea of health in the body of Christ, that there's this harmony of soul. And he says intent on one purpose, which is unusual because he uses that word phrenao again. But in this case, it's more to do with the heart than the head. You know, a minute ago it was one mind. And really here it means one heart, one passion, one purpose. Now this stuff won't make for a big business meeting, but it'll make for a bigger kingdom of God. And that's what gave Paul joy. So he turns from what he wants for them to what God demands from them. He says, okay, as a result of this, if we're going to get to this point, here's where we go. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. May my joy complete. I, I want to not only have faith, but I want to feel the joy. So it, it comes through seeing God at work in, in lives of people and transformation occurring. That's where the real joy happens. And to get that, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. In other words, surrender the need to be first. Let the other guy go first. And that's a choice you have to make every day. Every day you have to make that choice. If you are spending your life trying to get your way, trying to get first, it's going to wreck your marriage, it's going to wreck your business, it's going to wreck your relationships, and it's going to wreck this world. That's where we are today. So stop doing that because I want to build joy in your life. And I know it's counterintuitive, but it's others first. It's not about you. I was sitting at Daily Press yesterday. This old guy comes walking in. He looked like he was in his 90s. He just had that 90s look to him. Not 1990s, but 90-year-old. Kind of stooped, a little bit of a shuffle, and he walks in like this. And I'm watching this guy, and I'm thinking, what has he seen in his life? You know, if you're 90 right now, you saw stuff. You went from the horse and buggy to the space age. You know what I'm talking about? And he walks over to the candy deal, and I think he picked up a bag of peanut M&Ms. And I thought, how cool is that? When you're 90, you don't even have to think about carbs anymore, you know? You just peanut M&Ms. And I wondered about him. Because he seemed, a guy that picks up peanut M&M's, that's my kind of guy. He's got to be a guy of joy. And I thought, you know, if I ever make it to 90, which I seriously doubt, but if, if, if by some stroke of God's sovereignty, he let me live that long, I hope I have joy. And here's what I suddenly remembered. I've got a theory about aging. I've got a lot of theories, and some of them probably aren't right. I think this one is. Some people say old people are grumpy. That's just not true. Getting old doesn't make you grumpy. Because I know a lot of old people who are super winsome, and I love being around them, and they're progressive, and they're thoughtful, and they're insightful. Getting old doesn't make you grumpy. Here's my theory. Whatever you are as you get older, you become more so. That's my theory. If you're grumpy right now, guess what? When you get to 90, you're going to be a mess. Ain't nobody going to want to come visit you. I'm just saying. Whatever you are, you're going to become more so. If you're grippy, 
you're just going to get more gripey. But if you're joyful, you're going to become more so. And I think I heard the Spirit of God say to me, Bill, you can't wait till you're 90 to start that. It starts right now. And the choices that you make are going to affect the rest of your life. Are you going to live your life for yourself or are you going to put others first? Philippians 2.4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Happiness says get what you want. Joy says help others get what they need. If you will do this, it will change your marriage. If you will do this, it will change your relationships. And if we will do this, it will, it will restore our broken culture. We got to remember that the difference is what makes the difference. Did you hear that? The difference is what makes the difference. And if you want to be different, if you want to make a difference, you got to be different. And to be different, you've got to do what nobody else is doing. What is everybody else doing? They're trying to get on that airplane as fast as they can and get off that airplane as fast as they can because everybody wants to be first. And you got to give that up. And in the process of doing that, not only do you affect the relationships in your life, but you find complete joy. And as you get older it'll just become more so. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to confess to you that we have been just like everybody else, chasing happiness, trying to be first, always wanting our way. And just like everybody else, we experience conflict. Father, in this moment, we release that to you and we say to you, it's not about us. It's going to be others first. Give us joy. Let us be different. Let us value what Paul valued, the restoration of life and people getting right with Christ and people's lives getting put back together and their marriages getting fixed and overcoming addiction and overcoming Uh, sin and the power of sin over their life and we rejoice in that one mind one spirit one soul one purpose we're not going to rejoice when there's conflict we're going to grieve it and we're going to do what we can instead of trying to get our way to help others to get what they need and we thank you for the joy that's already here waiting on us when we make that choice. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.